Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Runners World podcast with me, Ben Hobson. And I'm sadly all alone for the intro, but do not despair as our guest this week is Dr. Andrew Jones, who offers some amazing insight into how some of the greatest marathon runners of all time prepare and train. But before we get into that, I'm going to tell you about an exclusive listener offer that we have where you can subscribe to Runners World magazine today and get three issues for just £5. Just visit hearstmagazines.co.uk slash runnersworldpodcast. Guest of the week. Dr. Andrew Jones has worked alongside the world's greatest marathon runners. He helped guide Paula Radcliffe to a record-breaking run and also with Elib Kipchoge on the Breaking 2 project. Now he's attempting to run his own marathon feat to break the three-hour mark, age 50. And he's here to talk about all things 26.2. So, Andrew, welcome to the Runners World podcast. Thanks very much, Rick. Nice to be here. Could you first give us a sort of brief overview of your, of your professional background? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, well, it kind of started with me um, as a sort of talented and reasonably successful junior runner and like a lot of people I think because I was I was somewhat self-coached and I was just became fascinated in the science that underpinned running performance so the obvious place for me to go and study or the obvious subject for me to do was sports science so like a lot of runners I, I went on to do sports science and then you know, again, like a lot of runners, once I went to university, my various various injuries and illnesses came along. The the running went a little bit by the wayside, but I continue to be fascinated by by physiology in particular, by you know what is it that enables some people to run faster than others, and how we can make people run run faster if that's what they want to achieve. Um, so you know that led me to do a PhD in exercise physiology, and then I just became sort of fascinated um, by researching in it and. You know, having that link with sport was always very important to me as well. So as well as doing the uh, sort of more sophisticated lab-based work, trying to discover what the mechanistic basis is to athletic performance, I was always keen to apply that knowledge to help um, athletes run faster. So kind of live a bit vicariously through some of the athletes that I supported over those years. What is it that about um, the speed element of running, this, this, this chasing sort of, uh, the fastest times is that what was it that was that from your personal experience of just trying to better yourself or was it just that the idea of getting the human body to move as quickly as possible is what really sort of like captured your imagination 
Yeah, I think I think a bit of bit of both. Um, I've always, you know, that question that you have in the pub after you've done a training session: Would you rather be, you know, win the Olympic gold medal or set the world record? Um, always, I was always the latter. I always thought, well, you know, anybody, not anybody, you know, you, you can you can win an Olympic gold by beating the people who are there on that particular day, and that's obviously no mean feat. But to be the fastest athlete of all time at a given distance, I think is something special. And of course, eventually, it might be might be beaten but at least for that period of time you can say you were the fastest athlete that ever lived over that distance so that that kind of appeals and as scientists i think we're we're fascinated by just how fast people can run and i think when it comes to the 100 meters or the mile you know those races are run so frequently that we're probably approaching what the limits are but clearly with the marathon there are so many you run the marathon so so infrequently and the courses on which the marathons are typically run aren't necessarily ideal. And when the best athletes do get together, it's often in a major championship. So the goal is to win rather than to run as quickly as possible. So, again, you know, when it came to the breaking two thing, it really was about, um, you know, people have run under 10 seconds for 100 metres. They run under four minutes for the mile. Was it humanly possible to run sub two? And, of course, um, we showed, well, Elliot Kipchoge showed that it was. But, yeah, th- those ultimate limits in terms of how fast can people run and, and what is it that prevents them from going faster is what continues to fascinate me. I mean, you mentioned Kipchoge there, and I mentioned uh, Paul Radcliffe in, in the intro. I mean, you, you have worked alongside very, very closely with, yeah, some of the world's um, greatest uh, marathon runners. Could you could you give us a, an insight into... I mean, I'm sure you've learned lots and lots um, being, you know, working w- with them. But what are some of the major takeaways that that, you, that you've taken away? Maybe that other people who aren't quite as talented at running can you know, put into their own their own training. Yeah. Well, first of all, they are physically, you know, phenomenal. There's no question about that. You have to have the underpinning physiology if you're going to uh, attempt to to run, a, you know, those sorts of achievements. But they you know, there are probably other people who are similarly physiologically talented. What you also have to have is is the psychology as well. And I don't necessarily mean in the race itself. Clearly, you have to have the confidence, um, the motivation, the, the ability to hurt yourself during the race. But it, but it's really the, the patience to have the, the longevity, especially when it comes to something like the marathon, because you might not hit your very best until you're maybe in your early to mid 30s. And you might have actually shown your early promise maybe as a teenager, like like both Paula and Elliot. Um, so that means you've got to train for about 15 years. And we all know how, how hard running is. Basically, perhaps as, as many as 10 or 12 times per week, every week for 15 years consecutively. And, and that's that's tough, you know, and it means that you have to get everything else right because you, you, you're training and you're recovering and you, you really have to sacrifice a lot. So it's that... Um, that monk or nun-like uh, status that you, you have to kind of buy into if you're going to achieve what you're ultimately capable of in the long term. We talk about the sort of the, the backlog of, of, of effort that gets into these results and, and that sort of coincides with sort of technological advances and there's a lots of debate around the influence of footwear currently now and, and those sorts of things. Um, what do you think, what, what's your take on, on, on the impact that things like carbon fibre plates and shoes has made on, on these sort of record-breaking times? Yeah, I mean, you, you you can't factor that out, can you? There's no question that, um, like in a lot of sports, there, there have been technological technological enhancements over the years, and this is this is one of them. Um, I'm one of the camp that believe that you you can't really suppress that kind of evolution. Um, 
you know, they're still phenomenal athletes. And, and the um, the times that we've seen Kipchoge and others run isn't just about the shoe, but clearly the shoe has has assisted in that. But uh, there have been various other things that have happened in our sport over the years and in other sports as well. And you just you just got to kind of roll with it, really. I think to try and prevent that um, isn't very forward looking. No, I think you're right. I think that there's there's always there's always going to be until everyone is told that they can't wear shoes. Then I don't feel like there's any there's any way of stopping the technological side of the sport, and that falls into nutrition as well, I guess, and those sorts of things. I mean, it does. You know, access to altitude training. There's a, there's a list of you know potential things that advantage some people over others. So yeah, and I, I, it's a it's a thorny issue, I know. But yeah, as I say, I'm, I'm of the of the view that um, it might actually do more harm to to try to prevent these sorts of developments than to embrace them. Are you taking some of the principles that you've used when you've when you've worked with people like Kipchoge or Radcliffe and using them on your own your own ambitions for the marathon? Do you think that the everyday runner can take these principles, or, or actually are these are athletes in that caliber? At, best off looked at as their own kind of thing and actually the rest of us need to need to race and train in a, in a, in a completely different kind of way a bit a bit of both i think that you know you've got to dial it back there are certainly lessons that you can learn from looking at the greats um, but you can't you know there's no way i could um, could run 100 120 miles a week anymore even if i could have been back in the day so yeah you and, and especially when you get a bit older one thing i've absolutely learned as i've you know continue to try to run over the decades is that you just got to be kinder on yourself absolutely as you, as you get a bit older you become more susceptible to injury you, you simply can't take the load and the speed as you used to i mean your your bones and tendons and muscles seem to be much more prone to to injury so i've got to build in a lot more recovery um than i used to that's one of it but you know that's certainly a lesson to to be taken from the um from the Kenyan approach i had the opportunity um with nike to travel to spend some time um you know with patrick sang in in elliot's camp there and the one thing that comes through very strongly is not only do they train you know pretty hard most of the time and, and certainly very consistently but they when they're not training they they really do relax they enjoy one another's company um, and and they really know how to chill out, and, and they don't stick rigidly to a training formula either. And and that's something as a science as a science, you know, I, I really like to plan my training, and I like to stick meticulously to it if I possibly can, you know, um, dot every i and, and cross every t. But what you have to appreciate is that you can't always stick to it. You have to be have to be really flexible. You have to. It's that old adage. You've got to listen to your body. But it is absolutely true. And. You know, I don't think they really know exactly what they're going to do from one day to the next because it will be modified by Patrick according to how they've responded and how they feel. So, so being a little bit looser in the way we structure our training is is probably one of the lessons. And really, the same with with Paula. I mean, she used to um, quite often train as hard as she could for as many days in a row as she could, but she'd wake up one day and realise that she wasn't capable of really running at all that day. And rather than run a half hearted session she'd take a complete rest day she wasn't afraid to do that so it's really having having the courage having the confidence um in your training and, and that actually means not training harder and harder all the time and doing more and more it sometimes means backing off and they they can do that you know i think that's uh, that's perhaps a surprising lesson it isn't necessarily the case that these great athletes always are training harder than the rest of us they tr- just train more sensibly it's very interesting, actually, because I think that the volume is very much seen as a success when it comes to, to training. And, and certainly um, uh, 
people taking on marathons can fall victim to the notion of big 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 mile weeks means i'm going to be able to achieve my pb so it's it's quite nice to have that refreshing uh take that if you if you feel like you don't want to run a lot that's also very very achievable and you can you can do what you want um why why have you now decided to to try to run a sub three what's what's your motivation behind this 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 ambition yeah part of it was because you know, I do. I, I enjoy training. I enjoy running. And once you get, you know, into your forties and fifties, you're probably more than you know halfway through your life, and you've got to start to think about rather than performance, but also about health and longevity as well. So I wanted to do something that had me exercising, you know, regularly and enjoying it. And absolutely, you know, you can't run marathons unless you commit to your training program. But it also meant that you didn't have to train quite so intensely all of the time. You can run easily on some days so that's good the other attraction to them for the marathon for me was that i'd never run one before now if you've run reasonably fast times at you know 1500 meters and 3k 5k 10k and the half marathon you can't help but compare your terrible performances when you're in your 50s to what you're doing in your in your late teens and early 20s so the good thing about the marathon was that i was bound to run a personal best there was nothing to um, to compare it against uh, so that was quite good. And um, I, I've run two already. I'd actually trained for a few and got various injuries and things and not made start lines. I actually started the Paris Marathon and only managed the first five miles because the um, the cobblestones on the Champs-Élysées really irritated my soles of my feet and my plantar fascia actually ruptured um, a few miles in, so I couldn't, couldn't complete that one. But I did run the Sea of Galilee Marathon. Um, when was that? About 18 months ago, I suppose. Really hot day struggled round in 3.34 and I, I knew that was way short of what I was capable of. Managed to prepare a bit better and ran Moscow um, last year and did 3.01, which I was pretty... It's getting close. Yeah, I know, 3.01, 3.30. Um, and actually, it's quite a tough course and it was extremely cold. It was the you know exact opposite of the Sea of Galilee race, which was blisteringly hot. This one was like about two degrees and hailstones and wind. So I thought well, I can't I can't leave it at three oh one you know sub three is certainly uh, calling me so um, I, I've entered for Amsterdam um, actually I entered for, I was supposed to do Prague in the spring and that obviously got postponed and has since been postponed again Amsterdam at present on October the eighteenth is is still supposed to go ahead I, I I'd be kind of surprised if it does but I've got to continue to prepare as if as if it happens. Um, and if it doesn't, then then obviously that training that I'll have done won't have been wasted, and I can roll it forward to uh, to whenever we're all able to uh, come out hiding and compete again. Mm. How have you been? Um, how have you been managing with with lockdown and 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 training and keeping the sort of fitness there without overworking everything? Because I think that's been a big a big issue for a lot of runners is the the sort of you know keeping any sort of marathon fitness that they they had for races, spring races, and and sort of you know not letting it slide too much before the racing is allowed again yeah actually a lot of the running that i do is on is on my treadmill so i'm kind of fortunate in the, in the basement of my house i've kind of put a room aside that's a gym and i've got a really nice treadmill in there and most of my work's done on, on there so and actually lockdown in some respects has been beneficial because i haven't been having to you know go off to work at eight in the morning and get back six or seven in the evening and then trying to fit some training around that um, I've had the various, you know, Zoom and Teams meetings and all of that, and various bits of academic work that I need to do. But I've, it's been much more flexible in my day. I, I've been able to train, you know, ten in the morning if I want, or two in the afternoon, or, or whatever's appropriate. And it hasn't 
really been too much of an issue, I must admit. I've been able to um, be quite meticulous about that. So no issues from um, from my perspective. And I, I like training on the on the treadmill just because it gives me that element of control. doesn't mean that I train on it every day, but I think um, in terms of knowing exactly where you're at, it's uh, mm. there's something to look for it. That's good. Did you um did you sort of peel like bring back your mileage, or have you sort of tried to keep it steady as you've sort of gone through the period? Did you did you have to adjust quite dramatically? No, it's been a, it's been around probably averaged around fifty miles a week. I would say something like that. What I, what I haven't done up until this point is do the really long runs. Um, what I did was a block of five k training. I managed to get actually away on on holiday. Um, last week and the plan was to come back and then I'd have 10 weeks to Amsterdam and that would be the very specific marathon training so I'd start to do the you know the 15 milers and the 20 milers and such like Um, so in that phase the idea was to get up into the you know 60 to 70 mile a week uh, bracket but I've actually quite enjoyed doing the I'm sort of going to be building the marathon endurance on top of a very specific speedy 5k you know unfortunately I wasn't able to run a a 5k in a park run or anything like that but i think i was capable of running 17 something which was the fastest i've been would have been able to do for quite a while it's a bit embarrassing when you're doing your you know sprint intervals at 19 kilometers per hour and then it dawns on you that you once ran a half marathon at a speed that was average quicker than that so your sprint intervals are slower than your old half marathon pace but anyway you've got to you've got to take every success you can get <laughs> I'd like to talk to to a scientist such as yourself about um, fueling, because I think that that can be a topic of a, a kind of uh, of great debate among runners. Are you following the kind of carb led approach that I feel like most elites follow, or do you think there's any merit in this kind of high fat, low carb approach? I'm definitely a, a high carb uh, guy. I, I think if you're a, a very slow marathon runner, 
or if you're an ultra endurance athlete, and I, I think I heard you talking about ultra endurance when I just joined the call before we started the interview, then then that's a different kettle of fish, really. I think there, um, you know, because the intensity is so much lower, then fat is fine, and um, you know, training yourself to use fat as a fuel um, is probably the way forward. But when it comes to trying to run quickly over the marathon or at any shorter distance, then the most efficient fuel to use is is carbohydrate that will keep your oxygen uptake low so it will you know maintain your economy and it's really important that you go into those events not only with lots of carbohydrate already within your muscles in the form of glycogen but that you make every effort to take as much carbohydrate or you know reasonable amounts of carbohydrate um, into your system every hour as well so um yeah that you should just about have enough carbohydrate to get you through a marathon if you go into it glycogen loaded and you take 60 or 70 grams per hour and it's much better to do that because um you know that you'll be taking in the right fuel to run at the high intensities that you intend to sustain will you be doing the um i know morton the gels or the drink is sort of favored by well certainly by kipchoge i know that's you know paul was competing before that stuff is that something that you're gonna have a go at as well or have you got your own your own sort of hydration nutrition plan uh to be to be honest i yeah i think there are a variety of different choices you you can make it depends really what you enjoy the thing about the morton products is they don't actually taste of anything which for some people is a good thing um and for others you know you need something a little bit sweet just to kind of give you that lift as well um the in in moscow i used a combination of different all sorts of different ones just to kind of keep me interested i don't think there's actually any advantage to um to those those newest gels and drinks compared to the ones that have been around for a few years uh, although they were kind of sold as as having this you know new um new formula um what f- the few studies that have been done don't seem to indicate that that's superior to you know your gatorades and your lucasades and whatever else powerade so it's each to their own as far as that goes the important thing is that you do avail yourself of the opportunity to take the fluids and the carbs on board I think another area that um, where you get sort of vastly differing views when it comes to marathon training is, I guess, the importance of of weight training. We've got we've had various people on Andrew over the last three years, and some would say all you got to do is run up a steep hill once a week really quickly. That that will do for like strength training. And some people would say actually, you, know, you need to be lifting fairly heavy weights, ideally three times a week. I'd be interested to know how, yourself having worked with the elites. What what do they tend to do is is there is there a kind of any generalizations that we could make about um sort of strength and weight training with runners i I don't think there's any real consensus on that so i'm not surprised that you've continued to have you know competing um um, views on it it's they all do a bit of it but um you know the important thing is that it doesn't override your running training i think it needs to supplement and complement what you do i think then it's fine it also depends a bit upon the you know the, the the type of runner that you are as well as the event that you're training for. I mean, um, you clearly need to have sufficient strength at shorter distances. When it comes to the marathon, less so. Um, but the type of training that can be beneficial there is things like the plyometric work, which can um, improve uh, running economy, that sort of thing. I don't think you need to be lifting particularly heavy weights. If you're not a very strong person, then it probably wouldn't hurt to supplement um what you do um but the important thing is you have to remember that every training session that you do whether it's running or, or weight training or whatever takes something out of you so you have to be you know it's all about the balance and if the training the weight training that you do 
doesn't drain your energy resources and mean that you don't get maximum out of your running train sessions then then fine go ahead but if it takes time a lot of time let's say if you're doing an hour three times a week and that's cutting into the time that you should otherwise spend running or you're so tired or sore that you you can't run a good long run or interval training session then it might well mean that you're doing too much you know so paula used to do um couple of training weight training sessions per week and you know i think i think did enough it wasn't enough to uh compromise the endurance work that she was doing that was really important elliot uh, they don't do much when they're in their specific marathon um training block they do some conditioning so they they recover after the most recent marathon that they've done they start to do some easy running they start to do some some conditioning and some body weight exercises and, and that sort of thing. And they, they do maintain the core strength exercises. That's something that's changed over the last couple of years, but there's no weight training facility in camp. So when they're, when they're doing their final, whatever it is, 10 to 12 weeks of marathon training, they really don't do a lot of weights, but what, what they do do of course is run over a lot of undulating terrain. And, uh, I was talking to, um, uh, you know some physios who've worked with some of the leading East African runners, and it's absolutely the case that if you look at their their feet and their their lower legs, they're extremely muscular. They've got you know muscles on on their feet that you didn't know existed, and that's partly because they're barefoot a lot of the time. But the terrain over which they run is really rugged. Um, you know, it's it's up and down, but it's side to side, and it's in, in quite often in heavy mud as well. So in a sense, they're doing a fair bit of resistance training while they run. So that bit you mentioned about, you know, would it be sufficient to run up and down hills? Well, in part, although I know some strength and conditioning colleagues who who would argue against that. And, um, you know, I, I think there is some room for inclusion of plyometric type weight training activities as well, just to uh, to augment the running economy adaptations. Hmm. That's really interesting. That's what, that's what I imagine. But I, I think some people perhaps, yeah, they can think... They can want the weight stuff to make more of a difference than it than it actually does because it's in some way an easier sell to go and lift some weights rather than I don't know run more or run run up and down loads of hills that can be quite a hard sell I think for some people. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and you know the other the other uh, argument that's put forward for weight training is that it can maybe reduce you know injury risk and and maybe there's some something in there. But yeah, I agree with you that. Um, you know, doing some is probably a good thing, but you've got to absolutely make sure that you don't do too much. It will never uh, be a substitute for the running itself. I wanted to ask you quickly about mental strength because, um, you know, when you see Kip Choge running, we, we were talking about um, looking at uh, Cheptegei doing the doing the five thousand meter world record. And it's it's so serene and it looks kind of it can look a bit effortless. But I'm guessing that, well, I, I'm sure that his his capacity to push himself, same with Paula, is is actually far beyond what most people could ever imagine. Was, was has that been your experience of working with these people? Actually, their capacity for pain is really um, like hugely impressive. Yeah, I think so. They um, they certainly do know how how to push themselves, but I, d- I don't think it's expressed in their in their running form to the same extent. So, you know, I used to go, I used to be um, consultant physiologist to um, to British athletics or to UK athletics. So I used to accompany some of our um, our runners up to various altitude training camps, and we went to Kenya on a few occasions. And it's really interesting when you watch groups of, of Kenyans and groups of, of Brits do their track sessions, for example. I'm certain that they're working equally as hard, and yet when you watch the Brits finish their their reps, 
their their form falls to pieces. You can tell their fatigue just by looking at their their stride and their you know their upper body. Um, and the running economy or the running form of the Kenyans doesn't seem to deteriorate to anything like the same extent. So there's there's something about that. I'm sure they're hurting just as much, and they're working just as hard. But for some reason, it doesn't seem to impact on their running form to the same extent. I mean, the one thing, the one thing talking about psychology that I'll say about Kipchoge, with my experience of um, you know the Break Into project in particular, was that of all the athletes that we tested and that we selected, he was probably I think the only one that genuinely believed that it was possible. You know, so he he had an un, unwavering, unshakable belief and confidence in his own ability and in his in his own. Uh, coaching and training and his preparations and he dares to think beyond you know what the current limits are and that's hard to do you know we, we see world records we saw it just uh just a few days ago in the 5k that world records tend to fall by one or two you know two seconds is a lot one or two or fractions of a second at a time but to blow it completely out of the water in the way that he did i think takes takes a different mindset as well and he, he clearly has that are you, are you trying to sort of adapt, like adopt some of that on a i guess on a a more everyday level with uh, with breaking three hours. Do you think actually you it, you really need to believe that that you can do it, and that there is a, there's that kind of that there's that challenge for people as well. Yes, in part, yeah. I mean, I, I think you do sort of need to dare to dream. I have to be careful here because I'm on shaky territory because I'm a physiologist, not a psychologist. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do believe that we do have our limits. I'm not. I, I love Elliot's slogan of no human is limited, but my job as a physiologist is to determine exactly where those limits are. <laughs> and I, think that, um, I think everybody does have their limits. There's no point you or I thinking we could break two. We could dream as much as we like, but we haven't got the equipment to achieve it. So you have to make sure you, your dreams are realistic as well as, as well as challenging. But yeah, I, I kind of agree that um, if we put our, minds to it dare to dream and prepare accordingly that we can probably all achieve a little bit more than we might expect and that's what i'm i'm hoping is true in this uh, this sub three uh, challenge that i've undertaken for myself definitely have you thought about where the human limit might be i mean obviously kipchoge has shown that it's lower than some people or higher than some some people thought it was do you, do you get a sense there is a kind of upper limit to the where we can get up to in the marathon um you, yeah, I think I think it's it's you know when you see him run one fifty eight forty in Vienna, and actually that didn't look like he was especially stretched. Actually, he came he came over to um, I'm at the University of Exeter, and we gave him an honorary doctorate last Christmas. And uh, one of the things we asked him at lunch was, you know, how hard was it? Could you have gone faster? And he was like, it wasn't that hard. I could have gone a lot faster. Than I wanted, so, well, that's well. Interesting. Yeah, and I, you know, people say, well, it was all about the manufactured course and such like, and maybe it'll never happen in in London or Berlin. But I, th- I wouldn't be surprised if if it did. I think if he, um, especially if he had a bit of competition in the shape of Bekele, and he was able to draft a little bit longer, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be, um, you know, my mind wouldn't be blown if if sub two was achieved on a on a regular marathon course, um, and perhaps Elliot or I mean, to be honest, I think. Um, the athletes that are coming out of Uganda at the moment are incredible as well. So the fact that 158 has now occurred, I think we'll see sub two happen again in other competitions before very long. And, you know, people will target because we know now what's humanly possible. People will target those new times. And, and I think we'll see uh, not only 
greater depth of incredible performances, which we're already seeing, but there'll be somebody, the, you know, the new Kipchoge will emerge from probably somewhere in East Africa, but take it to another level again. Do you think that there is, because everyone, we always talk about Kipchoge as the sort of the, the, the perfect example of how to, of, the, of a run-in, but is there actually, are there minute, they must be minute, faults within his physical uh, biomechanics that actually there is still room for improvement in terms of how a human moves. Yeah, the, I mean, there would be. What was a little bit unfortunate about the work that we did with, with Elliot and, and the other athletes actually prior to the um, the first break-in-two attempt in Monza was that when we tested them both in the lab and on the field, they weren't necessarily in their best condition. Um, I mean, some of the numbers that they were producing for VO2 max and you know lactate threshold and running economy was still incredible. Um, but in and of themselves, each one of those numbers wasn't wasn't the best that's ever been recorded do you know what i mean so it was really a combination of those three things um that was that's important i think in in achieving what they do the, the other thing that we're unable to measure in the lab you know somebody let's say somebody comes to the lab for for an hour and you do a test you can measure the various parameters of various variables that we think are important to success when they get to the start line but the other thing is that you have to remember that those variables all change the dynamic as the marathon progresses. So whereas somebody, um, let's say my VO2 max or my lactate threshold and certainly my running economy will get worse. If you measured me after two hours of my three-hour marathon run, you know the numbers that you would get then would be very different to what they were on the start line. I suspect that in people like Elliot, they probably, you know, they just don't deteriorate to the same extent. They've got incredible fatigue resistance, and that's something that we're not able to measure. So, you know, I think that's that fourth dimension that nobody really ever gets to talk about that is really what makes those guys really special. When we measured um, Kipchoge at the time that we we measured him, his, his numbers, while they were certainly right up there, they were amongst the best that we measured, they weren't necessarily... Um, the best the best of the lot and that's partly because he wasn't in his best condition I have no no doubt in my mind that were we able to test all of the athletes in their best condition or if you could measure Kipchoge a few days before he was you know ran a marathon in his best condition that his physiology numbers would be the best in the world I have no doubt about that Um, but you know at the time that we measured him they weren't but he knows how to get into that condition and I think um, it's the whole package both with him and whoever comes to supersede what he's achieved in the future, that it's really important. Andrew, it's so so good to talk to you about um about marathon running, and we wish you all the best. Hopefully, at Amsterdam when you to breaking the free hour, but if not there, then then definitely somewhere else. I'm sure you can do it. You've done three oh one, so you're so close. Very close. Yeah, it's just an extra few seconds per mile, isn't it? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Hopefully, it'll happen in um in Amsterdam. But if not, then uh, it'll have to be next year, won't it? But uh, let's uh, keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, well, look, thanks, thanks again for, for making the time to, to speak with us on the Runners World podcast. It was really, really great to get your insights on the marathon, you know, for the elites, but also for, for the kind of the everyday runner as well. So we really appreciate you coming on. That's a pleasure. Thanks very much. That brings us to the end of this week's Runners World podcast. A huge thanks to our guest, Dr. Andrew Jones, and of course to you for listening. The Runners World podcast is available on Acast, iTunes, Spotify, and all of your favourite podcast apps. Just search Runners World UK and click subscribe. Uh, Thanks again for listening and we will see you next week. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.